0: Good morning, church. Today, we jump back into the Gospel of Matthew after our summer in the book of Micah. Micah helped us understand the God that we worship in a few ways. I hope you had some, some particular takeaways from that book. Because in it, we were confronted with certain human tendencies that we sometimes forget about in our own hearts, like our ability to take advantage of people or uh, a temptation to only tell people the things they want to hear so they give us what we want or our innate ability to create idols out of all kinds of things in our hearts. We learned a lot about ourselves. We learned a lot about God also. He is the Lord over all the earth. That kept coming up over and over again in that book And, and he sees the injustices that we practice and the sins deep in our hearts. He's aware of all of it. We learn that God is just and he will not let those little things slide even if we think his job is to forgive us. God sometimes even chastises his people in order to purify them of their sin and make them aware of his holiness. But we also learn that God is supremely merciful. He delights even in steadfast love. And he wants to reconcile us to himself. He is all-knowing, he is holy, and he is loving. And Micah brought that to our minds directly with direct language. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this very God, the God of justice and mercy, revealed. Revealed to us. We started Matthew during Advent last year and saw that Jesus was first and foremost our Savior, God with us, Emmanuel. He will save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21 says. One of the biggest reasons Matthew writes his gospel is to show that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, the foretold Messiah, the greater son of David. For the first few chapters, we encountered example after example of Matthew drawing upon prophecies and types in the Old Testament to give us a greater understanding of who this Emmanuel is. These first four chapters centered on Jesus' fulfillment and filling up of Old Testament prophecies about him. Matthew even quoted Micah in chapter 2, verse 6. Matthew says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These fulfillment passages carried us through chapter 4, where Jesus started his earthly ministry after a time of temptation and preparation. And his ministry was primarily a preaching and teaching ministry. Matthew says Jesus' message boiled down to this. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus had come to inaugurate his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And the first act of inauguration was Jesus's magnificent sermon on the mount, which we took our time through. He told us in chapter 5, verse 17... Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You remember, fill them up. The sermon was Jesus doing exactly that. It was his kingdom manifesto. And everyone who belonged to the kingdom would reflect the precepts taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So kingdom citizens wouldn't simply abstain from outward unrighteousness. They would deal with the sin in their hearts, their hatred, and their lusts, and their faithlessness. And they would begin to see other people as image bearers of God and even start to love their enemies and pray for their persecutors. They would give generously and wisely to the needy. They would pray with real confidence and real simplicity knowing that the father hears their prayers. They don't have to convince him. They would serve the Lord their God above all things, especially above earthly treasures and money. And they would depend upon the Lord for all they needed. The characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven were concisely summarized in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Christians are poor in spirit. Because of their sin. They mourn over their sin. They're humble because they see God in themselves correctly. They hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. They are merciful toward each other and toward the world. They're pure in heart and in their motives, and they're peacemakers amongst their brothers. They're willing to endure persecution for righteousness' sake, Christ's sake. For those who listen to and do these things, Jesus concludes that they will be a man who builds his house on a rock. And that rock is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the faith. And by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people listening, the crowd that had gathered, you remember he started just with his disciples, by the end, they were astonished and they said, because he was he was he was teaching them as one who had authority not as their scribes and that's a crucial idea for all of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 jesus has authority the sermon on the mount revealed the authority of christ in his teaching Then chapter 8 showed that authority in practice. Jesus had the authority to heal a leper, but not just heal him, make him clean. He had the authority to heal a centurion's servant. You remember that story? But he didn't even have to go to his house. He healed him from far away. And Matthew tells us that he healed many, many more people. But Jesus is not one to be followed lightly. He has all authority, but right in the middle of Jesus's display of authority, we read of two men who approach Jesus and are unwilling or unable to follow him fully. So they're sent away. Jesus's authority over all things is attractive, but it's also demanding. Then after displaying his authority over the human body for most of chapter eight, Jesus displays his authority over the weather. He calms a dangerous storm on the Sea of Galilee, and his disciples are amazed. They said, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? These are things only God does. And that's where we left off. Nighttime on the Sea of Galilee, heading toward Gentile territory. So let's stand and continue the story As we read Matthew 8, 28 through 9, 8. Matthew 8, 28 through 9, 8. This is the word of the Lord. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blasphemy." Let's pray. Lord, we confess your authority now in all things. We pray now that you would give us understanding into your word, mold and shape our lives to it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' displays of his authority are not over. His authority is a recurring theme throughout the book, but... Matthew has placed all of these miracles in chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 here for a thematic purpose. We are supposed to see the absolute authority of Jesus over all things. That's the primary purpose of both of these stories. So, first, we see Jesus' authority over the forces of darkness. It's been a long boat ride. But we finally landed on the other side of the lake. And most likely it's still nighttime. We're very early morning. About six miles diagonally across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. They've landed in a small country region of a small town most likely called Kersa. But instead of a nice breakfast with the sunrise, Jesus is immediately met by two men. Matthew's description of them is short, but gives us a pretty clear picture. They're demon-possessed. They emerge from tombs. They are fierce and violent, and they shriek out at him. It's a frightening picture, like Matthew's horror story. But Jesus is absolutely unfazed. In fact, the two men seem to be the ones who are afraid. They scream out to Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, before we dive into those two questions, let's take a hard left and talk about the Gospels of Mark and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are commonly referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Which just means that they see the life of Christ from a similar point of view. For instance, Matthew contains almost all of Mark, over 80%. And Luke contains over half of Mark. And the difference between all three is in what they emphasize, what they spend time on. Mark spends his time on certain things, while Matthew and Luke spend time on other things. And the three together give us a nice, clear picture of the life of Christ from one perspective. And if that's not enough for you, if that's not a full enough picture, the Gospel of John views the life of Christ from a completely different perspective. Really, it's wonderful that we have all four. Amen? Praise the Lord for the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to draw on Mark and Luke to fill in parts of the story for us today because Matthew's account is the shortest of the three, which is pretty common. But there are some differences in Matthew's story that we don't see in Mark and Luke. The biggest difference being the inclusion of two men in Matthew's version where Mark and Luke only have one demon-possessed man. So what's up with that? It's pretty easy to understand if we consider two things. First, Mark and Luke never say there is only one man. And second, they probably only include one man because only one of them spoke. Nevertheless, in the details, in the details Mark and Luke do include, they're a bit more vivid. A bit more imaginative than Matthew in their descriptions, especially of the demoniacs. The episode happens in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark and chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke. So here's a few details from Mark. Mark says that the town had failed several times to bind these demoniacs because of their supernatural strength. He, the one demoniac in Mark, was constantly crying out amongst the tombs and even cutting himself with stones, disfiguring himself. We also learn that this demon-possessed man goes by the name Legion, at least the demon does, because the man is possessed by many thousands of demons. From the Gospel of Luke, we learn that the man also went around naked, Naked, screaming, bleeding. We also learn that the man falls down before Jesus and asks his two questions in response to Jesus commanding the demons to come out of him. We don't get that in Matthew. Looking at the parallel accounts here of these stories told in all three Gospels can be very helpful. But we have to always ask the question, Why did each one tell it like they did? And today we're in Matthew. Why did Matthew tell it like this? In Mark and Luke, the demoniac is kind of a sympathetic character. He's less scary. We feel bad for him. He's a tortured individual driven away from society, bleeding and naked and in in agony. But in Matthew a menacing, violent pair of men scream at Jesus as they approach him just before the break of dawn. The details that, Mark, or that Matthew includes reveal that for any normal person, these men were a big-time danger. No one could pass by them without feeling like their life was at risk. And so Matthew wants us to feel a little bit uncomfortable He wants us to be a little bit worried for Jesus. What are these guys going to do? But that doesn't last very long. Immediately, the demons recognize that this is no ordinary man. Jesus had not spoken a word to them, and they start to hatch an escape plan. They look around and see a herd of pigs. Matthew says in verse 31, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, Send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus says one word, go. He gives his permission. So the demons leave the men and enter the pigs. And Matthew tells us the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Mark tells us that herd was 2,000 pigs strong. Now there's a lot to unpack there. It's a mind-boggling scene, but let's pause all our questions about demon possession and all the little details and really try to understand what Matthew is doing with this story. Jesus encounters these men who are empowered by the forces of darkness. They challenge Jesus directly, even accuse him of overstepping the time, but Jesus is in control. He's sovereign over the whole thing. He commands and they listen. The demons immediately understand who they're dealing with. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Interestingly enough, that answers the apostles' questions in the boat. What sort of man is this? They also understand God's plan. The demons understand God's plan to a certain extent. They say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Their time on earth, they knew, is limited. And they rightly see Jesus as the conquering king who would permanently banish them to hell with Satan at the end of the age. They know that's coming. But they fail to see that Jesus has authority now. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into their world through the revelation of Jesus Christ he has authority over satans and his demons even before his death and resurrection because he is the god of the universe matthew wants us to see that jesus doesn't just have authority over human bodies or over weather or over waves but also over the spiritual realm that's the major takeaway of matthew 8 28 through 34 Jesus is not scared or fazed by demons. No matter how menacing they are or how many there are, his enemies do not worry him. He's not caught off guard by their presence. He's in complete control. Our attitude toward the demonic realm should be informed by Christ's ultimate authority. We should view Satan and his demons through the lens of Christ's absolute victory over them. We should be careful not to ignore the very real spiritual battle that we are in. Nor should we overplay the presence of the demonic in our lives. Both are failings we can make. One of them ignores the scriptures... That tell us to be prepared, to put on the armor. One of them ignores our own sin and our capacity for evil, blaming evil on the demonic always. Instead, we should take a realistic view as Jesus does here. Demons are real and they are around. They are evil and they are destructive and they can even be strong. But Jesus is triumphant over them. Amen. Amen. He has ultimate authority over them. Amen. And we are in union with Christ. Amen. Amen. The herdsmen tending to the pigs run into the city to tell their story. Matthew says, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Especially. Isn't that the whole story? Especially? These two guys who were terrorizing this town and barricading passage through the tombs are now in their right mind and no longer a threat. Praise God. Why does that need to be singled out as something the herdsmen also mentioned? Well, they're not concerned about the men. They want the townsfolk and especially their employers to know that they aren't responsible for the massive loss of livestock. Look at the town's response to Jesus in verse 34. And behold, Matthew, by the way, has said, and will say, behold, many times in these stories. Trying to get our attention, to really pay attention. So pay attention. Behold, all the city came out to Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. It's a bit anticlimactic, isn't it? We expect the town to respond to Jesus's ultimate authority over the demonic, over the healing of these two men, these valuable men, with joy, with praise. Why isn't there response, Uh, even an extension of hospitality, stay with us, Jesus, teach us more. Why don't they bring Jesus more people to heal? It's very simple. They valued their 2,000 pigs over the lives of two men. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. One of the facts of living in a fallen world is that money almost always wins in value over human life. I'm sure some of us have even asked the question, why would Jesus allow the demons to enter the pigs in order to destroy them, those poor pigs? But aren't the lives of the two men worth much, much more than 2,000 pigs? For Matthew's readers, the answer would have been an obvious yes. Matthew was written for a Jewish audience primarily. And we have to remember Jesus didn't destroy the pigs. He simply gives his permission here. He didn't set out to find a way to punish these Gentiles for their pigs. That's not the point of the exorcism. The point... Is the restoration of these two beloved image bearers. And we have to keep in mind that it's doubtful the demons even intended to destroy their new host that they begged Jesus for. That's just how the pigs responded to the destructive power of the demonic realm. When we look at the huge herd of pigs floating, drowned in the Sea of Galilee, we're confronted with that destruction in the two men. The same destructive power present in the drowned pigs was also present in these image bearers of God. The demons had rendered them almost inhuman, living in tombs, naked, cutting themselves, shrieking, terrorizing people. But Jesus saved them. And in the other gospel account, accounts, those men want to follow Jesus. We don't, we don't actually hear from the men again in Matthew's account. But in the other two, they want to follow Jesus, and Jesus tells them no, to stay and to go into the town. And they do, and they become evangelists. The townsfolk beg Jesus to leave because they valued their pigs more than these men Jesus permitted the demons to enter the pigs because it was an obvious trait. Men, human beings, it turns out, are more valuable to, than pigs to God. And we would do well to remember that. Interestingly enough, the demons begged Jesus just like the townsfolk begged Jesus. And in the end, the attitude of the whole town reflects the attitude of the demons. They don't want Jesus there. They reject his authority. So Jesus and his disciples, who have not been mentioned at all the whole time, get back into the boat and head back over to the other side. And we read that in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, I know you have a lot of questions. There are, right? There's a lot of questions about this story. How can that many demons possess two guys? Did the demons completely possess them like puppeteers? Does that kind of possession still happen today? Why doesn't Jesus just send the demons to hell? Why does he send them to the pigs? Couldn't have Jesus stopped the pigs from killing themselves? What happened to the demons after the pigs died? All good questions. But none of them Matthew addresses. That's not the point. We aren't told why Jesus gives permission. We aren't told why the demons wanted to enter the pigs. We aren't told if there are a bunch of other similar people inhabited by 2,000 demons elsewhere in the world. But we are told that when Jesus encounters the demonic, even in the strength of legion, Demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God and as the bearer of all divine authority. And we see Jesus use that authority to restore and heal people. That's the point. If you have remaining questions about the story, feel free to ask after the, after the service. I'll do my best. It might not be directly in the text, but we can speculate a little together. Shoot me an email. I'll investigate. I'll do my best to answer. Second, in our text today, we see Jesus's authority to forgive sins. So like I said, they got back in the boat and arrived back in Capernaum. Capernaum was where Jesus lived. It was his city. Matthew then tells us that some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. We can also learn about this story in Mark and Luke. And once again, we find more details there. This is the story that you find in Mark 2, where the friends of the paralytic lower him down through the roof of a home where Jesus is preaching in order to get their friend healed. Matthew doesn't include that bit. Again, because his focus is elsewhere. Listen again to what happens in Matthew. Matthew. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa. At first, that might strike us as pretty strange. Jesus, this paralyzed guy is looking for healing, not forgiveness. I'm not sure, though, that that's 100% true. Matthew includes this little detail in Jesus' response to him. He says, take heart, my son. Take heart. That's a statement almost completely unique to Jesus in the scriptures. It's an encouraging statement. The only other person to use it in the New Testament is Paul in the book of Acts. Jesus sees this paralyzed man who's been lowered down to him, and he sees... Beyond his paralysis to what's really bothering him. He's discouraged. He's discouraged because of his sin. Why can we conclude that? Well, it would be especially cruel of Jesus to see see someone in need of healing and only looking for healing, not looking for anything else, and for Jesus to respond to that person this way. Easy enough to say, your sins are forgiven, and to walk away from a paralyzed man. Jesus is not like that. Whenever he encounters someone in need of healing, he heals them 100% of the time. No, he sees what's really discouraged this man. The paralyzed man probably believes, as many did and many still do, that his sin caused his sickness. Jesus sees someone troubled by their own guilt in need of forgiveness and encouragement primarily. So he says and does the very thing the man truly needs. He forgives his sins. But the scribes in attendance are a bit taken aback. Matthew says, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. We can understand that response a little bit, right? Who has the right to forgive sins? God alone. The scribes hear Jesus take the authority to forgive sins for himself, therefore making himself equal with God. That's why they accuse him of blasphemy, even if they only do it in their thoughts. But Jesus is God, and so he can read their minds. He responds, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say? your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now that's an incredibly effective question. Jesus makes a simple argument, simple. He's, he's done it throughout the book. It's from the stronger to the weaker. The obvious answer to the question is that it's very, very easy much easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say rise and walk, because we can't verify if someone's sins are actually forgiven. Well, you can see if someone can walk. But of course, we know what it took for sins to be forgiven. We know that it took the death of Jesus on the cross as our sacrifice and substitution. The ultimate penalty for sin is death, which Jesus paid. But to his immediate audience, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus doesn't just forgive the man's sins. He proves his authority by healing him. Verse 7 says, "...and he rose and went home." Matthew needed to include verse 7 for his readers, for us, so that we can see Jesus actually does have the authority to forgive sins like he says he does. What is true on the outside, the healing, is also true on the inside. Jesus is not just the great physician of bodies, but the great physician of souls, even primarily so. Now compare the responses of this audience to the responses of the town people in 834. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. It's exactly the opposite. They fear the Lord and they glorify him. And they glorify him because he has given the authority to forgive sins to a man. Jesus. Now there's that important word, right? It bookends all of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. Jesus has the authority over all things because Jesus is king. He has authority to heal whomever he wants, however he wants. He has the authority to make some people clean when they were ritually unclean. He has authority over storms and seas. He has authority over demons. He even has the authority to forgive your sins. Jesus is not just another man that can do cool things. Jesus even calls himself here the Son of Man, which is a title he's used before and will use again in reference to his godness, his deity. He is God and he does what God does. And it's absolutely crucial that we recognize his deity and that we proclaim his lordship to the world, to ourselves. What is your response going to be to the authority of Jesus Christ? Is it like the people across the lake who thought only of what they lost because of Jesus? It's a pretty common response. After all, we are called to take up our crosses daily and follow him. The Christian life is not a life filled with material wealth and glory. And if it is, it's not reflected here in the Bible. It keeps many people away because of that. Or will our response be like the people in Capernaum who witnessed the authority of Jesus to forgive sins? Do we respond to Jesus' lordship with fear and praise and submission? We should be moved in our hearts to fear and praise today. So let's respond to the Lordship of Christ with awe at his divinity and thankfulness for his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that to you belongs all authority and dominion. And we we ask that that would be true in every instance in our lives. Lord, how often we forget that you're king. Lord, and we take authority for ourselves. And we confess that to you now. Lord, we pray that you would mold us and shape us to look more like you, our king. We pray that we would Desire to see you establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We love you and we praise you and we're in awe of you in Jesus' name. Amen.